Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hi, I'm your host, Corey Peckford. On today's show, Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, I had an awesome conversation with a local Calgary real estate investor. His name is Omar Tanweer. So my big takeaway from our conversation with Omar today on wholesaling and creative financing, how he was able to use his experience in marketing and accounting, plus he's an entrepreneur, and he was able to take that experience and do creative financing and wholesaling. So in this show, he shares some great advice and explains how there's opportunities and challenges in today's current market for both. Hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I just want to welcome Omar Tanweer to the podcast. So welcome, Omar. Corey, thanks for having me on the show, man. Truly a pleasure. Hey, I'm so glad you could be here today with me. So can you tell yeah. me some like stuff about your background, how you got into real estate investing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I'm local here. I've been in Calgary for about 20 odd years and a little bit of the background. So, you know, I did the university thing for about four years, got my degree in accounting, finance, worked in the corporate world for about a few years and have a list of, I'd say, experiences in sales, marketing. And, you know, last but not least, I kind of dived into real estate. And I think that's where we've been focusing on since last four to five years. And I've done a lot of, you know, online marketing in the past as well. I've dabbled into some private labeling, some logistics business, and really just brought me to this point where I think that real estate is going to be kind of like are the next 10, 20, 30 years that we're going to focus on and, you know, build some solid business on it. Oh, that's awesome. So you did some marketing and have you applied that to real estate? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm so grateful that knowing what I knew before getting into real estate is kind of like a good contrast because, you know, I mean, at certain point, I think real estate, there's a big marketing aspect to it, whether you're real estate agent or, you know, you're, whether you're a wholesaler. So that definitely, I find that it's a leverage that I have. And, you know, I experienced it through different marketing channel. I got into e-commerce in 2017 and I find that there's a lot of similarities. In fact, the principles are the same, whether it's real estate, whether you're selling some widget online through Shopify, your goal to get to your clients or the buyers or their seller, the process, the journey is very similar. And then you can replace it with whatever product that you would want to sell or, you know, bring it out to your audience. So real estate I've learned is considered a high ticket sale item. So the marketing strategies are completely different than you would market, let's say, a supplement product or some sort of like digital product or ebook. But it definitely goes back to the principles. And I think that's really important that, you know, in this day and age, we have to have that, you know, basic understanding and, you know, working with the right team of people. And I think this is one industry that's evolving every day. Yeah. So if I'm not up to date on it, what we did maybe a year ago or six months ago may not be working at this point. So it's evolving quite a bit. And with the digital marketing, I think that's just a whole new different, you know, level that it's bringing. So, so yeah, I think it helped me quite a bit. Yeah, I can see that. And then 
as the market changes too, uh, we see in the market kind of explode in February. It was just going insane everywhere. And now it's with interest rates climbing, it's pulled back. I'm sure some of the tactics that you use for the marketing would change depending on what kind of real estate market you're in, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, real estate is no different than, you know, any other business out there. It's very cyclical. It's just like stock market. You know, there's some times when, you know, six months ago when everybody's eyeing on the equity appreciation on the real estate side of things. And now that has shifted to you know, properties that you could cash flow on. So the message changes and you have to be in tune with what the people are looking for. The way I think is no matter what, whether it's online or offline marketing, we have to keep in mind is what is the problem that we're solving? And if we can solve that problem effectively and with the leverage of social media or digital marketing, then the goal is to be, you know, in front of your customer, whether you're going to be in front of the customer for a day or two versus if you do your marketing long enough, like a year, two years, then it sets the brand recognition for your client or customers. And I think that's really important is no matter where the market is, consistency is the key when it comes to digital marketing, for example. For sure. Yeah, that's so true. So I know you got into wholesaling earlier on in your real estate investing journey. So can we kind of dive into wholesaling and how you got mm -hmm. started? That's a great question. And I think I got into it accidentally. So I have done some other businesses and, you know, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, how one can make money in real estate. You know, I think the biggest misconception a lot of people have is the moment they think of real estate, they're very much focused on the real estate agent side of things where they think, well, okay, in order to get in real estate, you have to have a license. You have to work with a brokerage while that's all true. But then I think at the same time, it's a very misunderstood industry. So with my brain being curious, I just really wanted to see what options are out there. And that got me into my quest of, you know, looking up what's the fastest way to make money in real estate. And this is like three, four years ago. And, you know, I come across some concepts on wholesaling. Then I learned it's actually not a new way. This has been going on for quite a while. You talk to some people who are in the industry for a while, and you realize some guys have been doing this since early 90s. And it wasn't that sophisticated, but the tools and process is still the same. So I got into that by just being curious and what's the fastest way to make money, because that's the biggest misconception a lot of people have, is you can't make money in real estate today. They think, well, you have to buy something with 5% down and, you know, go to a bank, get a mortgage on it, hold a property for rental. And then you get a little bit of a teeny tiny cash flow each month for the next 25 years. And one day that's going to be paid off full. But then it comes with a laundry list of being as a landlord, what your roles and responsibilities are. And it's not easy. It's really tough. So the way my brain worked is, okay, well, there has to be a way, then that's where wholesaling was the answer. But interesting enough, actually was a reverse process. I got into something called creative financing. And we'll chat about that in a bit here. But I got into creative financing. And then I learned that wholesaling is just a strategy that we pull. And it's kind of interesting. A lot of people try to understand the role of a wholesaler. Some say, well, are they really investors or are they just like people in the middle or are they just marketers? And I think the answer is all of the above. 
And I think that's the way I would put at it. My mentors, that one of the way I've learned is wholesaling is just another tool in your toolbox. So, and that's what really got me intrigued. And I realized, man, I could make some money. All I need to go out and find a deal and a buyer. So how did you take that knowledge and actually right. pull it off? Yeah, if you could kind of walk through your first sure. successful wholesale deal, how you found it, that kind of it's stuff. Absolutely. My first deal was, I think the deal was that goes against all the misconception in real estate. It was one of the best deals. Okay, so I'll walk you through it. So for starters, the property I didn't own, the buyer I didn't know, the seller I didn't know. I didn't have any of these three things to kind of dive into wholesaling because that sometimes becomes the main barrier point for a lot of people. Well, I don't have a property. What should I do? Or, oh my God, I don't have a you know huge buyer's list. What should I do? So it's like a first stop. And that's where a lot of people struggle to overcome. With my first deal, what we did was we networked with a lot of you know individuals in the real estate side of things. And I found out that, you know, there's people out there who are doing it successfully and they have deals and going back to the point where I wanted to really find out how I can add value to this person. So at the time he was looking for buyers, they had a good deal, locked it up under a contract. And I said, okay, all I need to go is do and find a buyer. So I went out and networked a little bit more. And then I found out there is some buyers in that neighborhood and literally we just connected the deal with few phone calls. The property was locked up at 350. We flipped the contract for 365. So it was a 15 K spread. Nice. Um, and one thing what I've learned in the States, so I've started actually real estate in the States and it's pretty common. There's a concept or term called daisy chain. Are you familiar with that? I've heard it. Yeah. Maybe you could just kind of go through that. Yeah. So daisy chain is just a really simple concept is you know, if party A has the B or has the deal, then you're going to have a buyer some point down the chain. So it could be the buyer at level E or F and in between from A to B to C to D to E, it could be all connectors. It could be, uh, you know, few wholesalers involved, few investors involved, or few real estate agents involved. And it's pretty common in states where you would have a deal and you would have like five people involved in the deal. So it becomes a chain reaction where you have more and more people involved. And in my experience, I noticed that the bigger the dollar value on the property, then you would have to have enough spread to justify it. How does that mean to what we did here is it was a similar concept. So I didn't have the buyer. We didn't have the seller. We just had people in between. So I was part of that chain where we successfully did an assignment on that deal and it cost maybe around four or five phone calls and that was it that must have felt amazing to to pull off your first deal it was amazing and truth be told i still haven't seen that property (laughs) so (laughs) no you didn't even go in it i was going to ask were you door knocking like how did you find the property then nothing it wasn't my property i just connected with somebody who had the property so you weren't physically there it was through cold calling and how did you it was virtual it was a virtual uh, virtual deal i would say because you know, the seller on this deal was a gentleman that we know, and, you know, he invests successfully out in Calgary and, you know, we just connected and, you know, we spoke about, Hey, what are you doing? What are you looking for? And I think that's the most important 
important part is anybody who's starting out in real estate, whether it's wholesaling or investing or whatever form of getting involved in this industry is to go out, talk to people. And one of my mentors used to say that a lot is stop spending time on computer. Stop comping it all day long. Like I got into that problem of analysis paralysis and my mentors just shifted my mind on them. They said, shut your laptop, go out, talk to people, whether they're sellers, whether they're real estate agents, brokers, lawyers, that's where the deals are. That's where 80% of the inventory is. So you so, never stepped foot in the property. You didn't run comps never. for it. You didn't do an assessment. So you must've had some conditions in your offer. So that way, when you went to kind of pass it down the chain, if mm -hmm. the value wasn't there, you were going to obviously back out, right? Like, so if you couldn't find a seller or a buyer that wasn't going to pay more, and how much of a time frame did you give yourself on the conditions? Well, the property was locked in and I remember we had like 30 day conditions on it. Yeah. And we still did our comps. We still ran our numbers. Was this afterwards? Like once you locked it in, then you kind of did more due diligence? That's right. Okay, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we did that. And that's where, you know, most of that deal creation happens, by the way. That's when you realize, okay, if it's a deal or not a deal. So after our preliminary assessment, we realized, okay, there is a spread. So particularly this deal was a redevelopment opportunity. It was an RC2 lot. So as you may know, with infills, it has become a hot commodity over the last you know few years. So knowing what the demand is, and I think that's what's important is I realized, okay, there is a market, there's flippers out there looking for these type of products. And I just went that direction. And I went and I talked to somebody who had at the time buyers that were looking for something specific. So we ran our numbers. The property was already under contract with this other party. So we knew we had the data available to crunch our numbers. And then we figured out, okay, there's about 15K spread. And that's where we reached out to the buyers. And, you know, at the time the buyers were going the hard money route, they were cash buyers. So the process was relatively easy because the property, you know, there was nobody living in there. So it was just possession immediately, that kind of stuff. So we had to make sure some of the due diligence checklist was done. And as soon as that was done within 30 days, we did the assignment and moved on to that. But to date, that was the most easiest deal I ever done. <laughs> and it was your first one. That was my first one. So, wow. so all the misconceptions is that, oh, you need a deal or oh, you need a buyer. You need to go see the property. You need to do the flip out of the window. Wow. Because now I have the data point to prove that, hey, it's doable. Yeah. And you did this. So you were living in Calgary and you did this virtually into the States. Is that correct? No. Well, this was in Calgary. This is oh, so, oh, I see. Sorry, I, I misunderstood that. So you did this deal in Calgary, but in it was Calgary. virtual. Okay. That's right. That's right. And then we did some virtual deals where we were involved at that time. I was sort of still learning the ropes and, you know, we had mentors in the U.S. market. So actually you could say I had another deal in Austin as well, but it was something more of hands-off where we had spoken to the seller initially. We presented the offer. And then we had mentors who kind of like taught us throughout the process of how this whole thing is going to work out, but it was a creative deal. And then what the process was, once we had it under contract, we just assigned the contract to the partners. And then we earned an assignment fee out of that. I see. That's awesome. So how long were you doing wholesaling in Calgary before you kind of started to do more of the actual buying of the property? So I've been pretty much actually doing it, I'd say since 2017. 
But really, I dived into it, I think, during around pandemic time. Right after the first year, I think I realized it after that this is going to be a really, you know, a long-term play and a strategy. And, you know, after learning real estate, and I think that's what really gave me that assurance that, hey, maybe I can do this for the next 10, 20 years and build, you know, something really big on this. But yeah, I would say going back 2017 was that year. Okay. What's some strategies, you know, if someone wants to get into wholesaling or try it out, what would be some tips that you would give them? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is, and again, I go back to my first deal. If they want to start off with a strategy, now, are you referring to what that looks like as a step or if there's any particular strategy they should be using as a wholesaler? I think maybe both. So a first step for someone that would be new to it, Mm -hmm. And also maybe some strategies that you found were, you know, some people might be sending out mailers or door knocking Mm, or that kind of thing. Like, how are they finding these deals to wholesale? Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I think the biggest thing as a new wholesaler that I would say is go talk to people. Go talk to the right people who are playing the game. And at this day and age, I think the best thing that ever happened for us is YouTube. It's kind of like a university. It's free content. There's so much content out there that if one wants to really figure out, okay, wholesaling is what they want to start off with, then obviously there are some technicalities involved, meaning you got to know how to comp a property. There's a criteria of comping a property. And I think I made those mistakes too early on where, you know, we get excited with the first deal or second deal. And, you know, we try to justify the numbers. And I think real estate is just a numbers game, you know? So knowing what real estate is doing in any local market and real estate is such a local thing that, I mean, you could have market crashing in Ontario, but relatively speaking, if you look at the landscape here, it's a whole different you know, the numbers are different, the strategies are different. I mean, we get some common denominator, but I think knowing what's happening in your neighborhood, knowing what's happening on the street, property values changes from street to street. So there's a lot of that criteria goes on to, well, how to comp a property, how to lock it up under a contract, and then making sure you're keeping your buyers and buyers in mind, because you want to always wholesale a property as if you would want to close on it. So if there's not enough spread, let's say for your end buyer, then it may not be a good deal. So that was my biggest thing is like, you know, I've made a lot of that mistake early on as we would comp a property where we wouldn't know what would be the criteria. And I think there's a lot of content out there. I follow some guys online. I think Jamil Damji does a great job in explaining that. And I mean, they have like four hours long workshops on YouTube that they go dive deep into it. Another thing also, Corey, is that every house is different. So you can never get to, let's say, a hard number and you can say, well, that's exactly how much it's going to be worth or how much I should lock it up at. So it always a range that I would look at is if there's, you know, the ARV. I'm only looking at like, okay, well, what the estimated ARV would look like. So comping is very important. The other thing is learning your local laws and regulation that goes around how you do real estate, whether it's wholesaling or creative financing. I mean, U.S. is very different from Canada. And, you know, I was involved in Texas. Texas is very different than Alberta. 
I mean, there's a lot of commonalities, but there's a lot of differences. There are different legal tools available to us that, you know, for example, with a subject to or wraparound mortgages, we call it agreement for sale in the States. It's whole different tool sets. So knowing what the landscape looks like. And I mean, in the States, there's some States that requires you to have a real estate license in order to wholesale. So that could be very important piece of that puzzle as well. So doing the comping part. And the second is, I would say actually the other way would be is know what your landscape looks like first. Then I would go talk to realtors, go talk to the brokers, see where the demand is, where there's people moving. You know, the dynamics are very different from, let's say, southeast to northwest. The buyer profile is very different from, you know, south to north. There are some neighborhoods that are regentrifying right now. You have a lot of infills opportunities that are coming up. So knowing what the buyer profile looks like, that's very important as well. And then, you know, the bigger question is, I think for any wholesaler or anybody who has that entrepreneurial, you know, mindset is figuring out why you're doing it in the first place. What's your vision on this or what's the goal looks like? If you want to do it part-time, you know, maybe you two, three, four deals a year, then it's maybe a different strategy. But if you're looking to do this as a carrier or something long-term, then you need to treat it as a business. And one thing, what I've learned in real estate is you can make money today. You can make money each month and you can make money down the road. So how would you do that is, I mean, wholesaling gives you that leverage to get the money today. And that becomes active income. When it's active income, it's just like any other business. So if you treat wholesaling like a business, I think this is probably the best thing you can do with very little downside. So understanding what wholesaling is and using the right tools to execute your contracts or whether your deals, that could make the difference. Yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense. And then so like we could just touch on a little bit of like some strategies to actually find these deals. There's generally a story, something going on, right? It could be uh, maybe a financial situation with the seller or, you know, obviously the stories vary from deal to deal, but what kind of strategies mm -hmm. work well, do you think? Okay, so this is something what I've learned with, I'm sure your listeners might have heard of Barry McGuire. He's one of the great lawyers in town, Calgary, Edmonton area. And I highly recommend if somebody is looking to start off, I think Barry has a course that, you know, can give you a crash course. But one thing I've learned is it's kind of like a, consider like a table, a table that has four legs. So the marketing strategy or how would you go out and get the leads or your sellers or your buyers you could rely on one way, but I've learned that what you need to do is maybe one or two areas and focus on those channels. So whether it be at, you know, direct mailers, whether it's door knocking or online marketing or a combination of all three. And what we do, what I do is, you know, I think there's the way the basket categories that I put in is evergreen marketing and then what's happening right now. So evergreen marketing is, you know, you put out your ad on newspaper, you reach out to your sellers via door knocking or flyers. That's never going to get out of fashion. It's effective. It's disruptive. It's highly targeted and it has great success. The only drawback on that is you may have to do that flyering or that, you know, paper ad for maybe three, four or five months consistently, and then you get your return versus online is like today. 
you know, if you have a healthy budget to spend, you can get results as quick as tomorrow. You can have leads coming in. You can create that right away. The only thing I really recommend, and I think that's where it goes out for me as well, is you just need a good process around it. If you throw out your marketing, get ready that you're going to get a lot of responses back. So unless you don't have a system, it's going to be really tough because time is of essence. Once you get somebody responding back to your ad or you post out something, then there's a reason why they're reaching out. They might have a pressing issue that needs, you know, urgent attention. And another thing, Corey, I would mention is the concept in marketing of inbound versus outbound. That makes a whole difference. Inbound marketing is something that you put out an ad and somebody responds back to it. Versus outbound, meaning if I cold call somebody, I am trying to reach somebody in their middle of their day, that conversation is completely different and a whole different mindset as well. So I found that is very effective once you understand the psychology behind it, it changes the whole landscape for your deal. So I really like any marketing strategies that involve an inbound lead whether I put out an ad or I put, you know, a bandit sign out or sticker, or let's say a neighborhood of, you know, 15,000s and I get some responses back. The folks that are reaching you wanting to do business with you. And that's what I think what I've learned in my short, you know, four or five years is that you want to be talking to the people that need help. That makes sense, and that yeah. changes the whole conversation because your deal is going to be quicker. You're not going to run after that person. That person needs your help. Yeah, so sure. then it's on your shoulders as a wholesaler, whether you have a cash buyer on your end, or if you have the capacity to close a deal, then, you know, you have all the options available. So then you're not going to have the seller ghosting on you. You don't have to run after them. It's there. And that seems to be very effective. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's a quite a difference in like the data profiling that say we'd have access to in Calgary, Canada versus the States where you can buy a lot of information online mm -hmm. because you've experienced both. Can you maybe just kind of dive into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And I think that's one of the first reasons I went to U.S. market is the access of data. Now, Canada is overall is a non-disclosure country where you don't have that data as much as you have available in, in Texas or let's say anywhere in the US. Now, Texas still being the non-disclosure state, you can still buy off a lot of data. You can learn so much about your sellers or your clients that there's some you know, tools, there's software you know, available as a service that you can buy and you can highly target your audience based on certain parameters, which you cannot do in Canada. Does it mean it can't work here? No, it just means that you need an alternative strategy. And in Canada, I mean, we're still not as I think at a level where the States is, but now you have, you know, lawyers here, you have real estate agents, you have brokerages who have all this data. And then one thing I would recommend is if somebody wants to do wholesaling or dive into this thing, go out and make some relationships, have a good real estate agent on your team. And once you do that, then technically you do have access to that data. And then at that point, you can figure out, well, for example, you know, I always think, well, which neighborhood does well in a city relative to the other neighborhoods? 
So all you need is some data sets around it or data points, whether it's you know a property that's listed, data on the market, list to close ratio, are the two, I think, the biggest ones I think that tells a lot of story. And all you're looking to do is you're trying to figure out how does that fit in to what your strategy is. For example, in the States, the conversation that I would have with a seller who's going through a pre-foreclosure is completely different than a tired landlord. And I can go out and buy a list of these individuals and properties. Then there's a two-step process to reach out to these people. But overall, I think it's very easy in the U.S. to pull a strategy off like that and you can put up a system around it. So once you know which type of property you're trying to you know, reach out or the sellers you're trying to get at, whether they're pre-foreclosures or you know, probates or tired landlords or zombie properties, the conversation is different. Our end goal is the same. We all want to lock up a property at you know, a good price, but how to get to that point would make a difference. In Canada, I don't know if it's easier or tougher, but it's different. You still have probates here. I mean, if you go out and network with the right lawyers and you tell them what you do and, you know, they understand your business model, then they may be the one that bring you the deals. And I think, in my opinion, those are the best ones because most of your work has been done. And that's how you can leverage it so much and you can build a bigger business around it. So the biggest thing I think in Canada, I think, or in Alberta, let's say, would be that availability of the data. It's not as fluid. So I think if I compare the two markets, that's one of the big difference. And the other thing is the fluidity of the market. So the Canadian market, it always trails off from what the U.S. market does. But in the U.S. market, for example, I learned one thing that you have a lot of buyers from different states. You have California buyers investing in Texas. You have New York investing in Texas. You have a lot of crisscross that's been happening. And I'm seeing that more, I think, now in last year, year and a half in Alberta, that we see a lot of BC buyers. You see a lot of Ontario buyers coming in. And so, you know, it goes back to my thought process. I think there's a lot of similarities there too, where the Canadian market, I feel like, think about a year or two lag where whatever happens down south, we kind of follow that trend here as well. And then that could be real estate, that could be you know, a few other industries that you know, we can compare with. But I think overall, that's the trend I've seen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we'd like to talk about creative financing a little bit. So can we go into like why creative financing and how would that benefit an investor? Absolutely. So if there's anything that I've learned in real estate so far is this, never guarantee debt. Okay, you know expand that on that. <laughs> okay. So the concept of never guaranteeing debt. Let's say you have different strategies. Let's say you do Burr. What do you do with Burr is you need to buy a property. You need to renovate it. You need to rent it or rehab it. And then you need to repeat the process. The process is great. But what happens is we go, let's say, put 5% down on a mortgage. And then we borrow the rest. What we're essentially doing is we're essentially, whether it's your company or LLC or a corporation, or you do it individually, you are telling the bank that I will be personally liable to pay up this loan. So you put up your personal assets or let's say your company's assets to guarantee that loan. With the creative financing, it changes everything. It's like complete reverse. 
So it did mess up with my brain when I first come across this strategy and I said, oh, well, creative financing is really cool. This is where the concept is you can own as much real estate without guaranteeing any of that, you know, loan or mortgage, whatever that would be. But let's say you buy a property today. Let's say you pay 500K for it. You put 5% down, you put 25,000 down, you finance the rest for 475. If the market crashes in let's say a year or two or market goes down, your house is gonna worth less. So what that means is you're still paying the bank whatever that rate and the payments that you've locked into. But if the market goes further down, which what happened in 08, it could potentially wipe you out. But in creative financing world is you're basically taking over somebody else's debt. So technically with the right tools, and it is a very sophisticated strategy. I mean, if one thing I should tell anybody is make sure you know what you're doing, or if you don't know, partner with somebody who know what they're doing, because it is an advanced strategy, but to put it in a nutshell, not guaranteeing debt is basically, it's not your loan. You're just making a payment on it. So you're not personally liable for that loan. You don't have any assets that you're going to put up to guarantee that loan. So it's an instrument. It's basically a tool that leverages you to buy, let's say, I don't know, 10 properties a month. And since you're not going to a bank to get these properties or get these loans, you can own as many as you want. So there's no debt to service ratio involved. There's no credit check. There's very little that you need to do to buy a property with creative financing. Can you give uh, an example, like a just a hypothetical, like how a deal like this would come about or be structured? Yeah, sure. So first of all, we need to understand is in creative financing, you can go about different ways. You can get a property with an agreement for sale. That's something what we do in Alberta. I think in Canada, it's pretty much the same tool available. So agreement for sale, you can do a lease to own option or a lease option. And with agreement for sale, you can do seller financing with it. You can do a vendor take back. So all those are a form of creative financing. But let's say you have a property that is worth, let's say 500 and okay. you have an existing mortgage on it for 450. So technically your equity in the house is about 50K. So if you were to go out, list the property in the market with commissions and closing costs, you may walk out with, let's say very little, or if at all, you might have to put up something to close on the deal. What creative strategy, what it can do is it helps a seller to get the most for their house with some sort of terms. So what I could do in that scenario is I could say, well, okay, Corey, I mean, I know the property's worth 500. You have a debt for 450 that you got to pay off regardless. So we would work out a number where that would be your equity. So I could take the property with a subject to clause, for example, or in that case, I would do an agreement for sale where I would buy the house with the existing mortgage, and if there's a down payment that we need to pay you out, let's say if you're the seller, then if you get your equity out, then we can make it all that work. Because with the agreement for sale, I'm just taking over the existing mortgage. So it's not like assumable. I think a lot of people were doing assumables back in 08. 
which there's a big difference there. With assumables, you would still need to go through a bank to assume the mortgage. With an agreement for sale, as far as you have a seller who's agreeing for it, and you have the capacity to, let's say, cash or equity out, then that AFS document will let you do that. And all you need is a lawyer to close the deal. Basically, you won't even close a deal because let's say if you have big five bank that has a mortgage on it, and let's say you have four year remaining on the term. So, I mean, it's really up to you how you negotiate a deal, but you could technically get that agreement for sale for the next four years, meaning you don't really have to close on that deal for an extra four year term. Now, in that four years, I could sell or finance the property to another buyer, or I could hold it as an investment or like a cash flow investment, or let's say if I want to do a short term rental, I can go out and do Airbnb on it, and then I could cash flow on it. So as a creative financing person, I think that the biggest thing is I'm not eyeing on the equity. My goal is to how can I cash flow on it without going to the bank? And if I did this strategy, I can go out and, you know, do this on 10 different houses like that without going through a bank. So it won't really affect my, you know, debt ratios and all the, you know, KPIs that the banks would look at. So let's say going back to that example. So with 500 K, let's say we agreed on 475 because that's something you would get on the market after paying closing costs and, you know, legal fees and commissions. Then what I would do is I would buy your house with subject to at 450 and I would cash you out your 25 K equity. So as far as you get the equity, you agree to keep the loan and we agree to pay you each month or take over that loan. So let's say you're paying 1800 a month. I would take over that 1800 a month and then I would close on it until whenever that term negotiate. So that all makes sense. That's an awesome explanation, but let's say you have this agreement in place and the mortgage is now, the term is coming to an end. So the four years is coming to an end and that seller says, no, I don't want to renew. I don't want this mortgage in my name. What do you do in that? At the time, at the time. Yeah, like as that's coming to close, like as that mortgage is going to, you know, the four years is coming to the end of the term. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What would you do as an investor? So if the seller says, well, we don't want to close. That's right. So the seller is saying, okay, because the mortgage is stayed in their name, right? But mm -hmm. the title transferred to your name. But now That's what right. happens if the four-year, you know, the bank's now kind of getting involved and they're saying, okay, well, if you couldn't qualify as an investor, you obviously you'd have to have a plan to sell gotcha. it or that kind of thing, right? Gotcha. Well, the nice thing about agreement for sale or any creative financing, Corey, is that you spell it out up front. What happens if you can't? then that's really up to how you negotiate the deal. So maybe agreement for sale, maybe not the best option. Maybe you do a lease option where, you know, you could walk away and not have any fallback, but let's say if it's agreement for sale, the worst could happen is you cannot perform on that closing, whether it's coming from the seller or you as a buyer, you could lose up your deposit. You could lose all the monthly payments that you have made and you know, you would lose the house. So that's up to the individual investor to assess that if that risk makes sense. So if the market continues to go down, but I have huge cash flow potential, meanwhile, 
then I might be able to take that 10, 15% market hit in the next year. But if I have a term that is, you know, far out in the future and, you know, all else being equal, you know, real estate overall does appreciate long-term. So it really depends. And I think that's where the biggest question is, where the property is, how the property looks like, what's the condition of it. And, you know, it all has to make sense. But let's say if the seller doesn't want to close on it, then you would have to spell it out up front. That if this happens, then whether there's some payout penalty or some sort of ramification to justify that you don't want to close on the deal. So that I think sense. working with a good lawyer will make all the difference. Yeah, good tip. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. It's going to move into now current market conditions and just get to your thoughts on with the market pulling back, what do you see mm -hmm. as an opportunity and what do you see as a bit of a challenge in the current Calgary market? Well, the opportunity is creative financing. The challenge is wholesaling. <laughs> Perfect. Short answer. Short yeah, answer. The, the two topics we just <laughs> talked about. <laughs> <laughs> well, the long answer. And why, okay, it, and why? Okay, okay and so why? Okay. Explain those. Let me see if I can hit it. I think with the interest rate increase the inflation the affordability issue and with you know the market cooling off it's becoming not a challenge but you just need to find good deals at this point and the good news is there are more good deals you know i think as a wholesaler it was great last two years has been great as a wholesaler because you would have you know such a quick equity appreciation you can lock up a contract let's say for 90 days and then the property would be worth you know 20 30k more in this economy, I think in this market, affordability is the biggest concern. And some guys that I follow, I think the bigger guys are all doing the same thing. They're providing affordable homes. So if you can solve that problem in this economy or in this market is providing an affordable housing, or let's say a house that is not you know, $1.5 million, start off with something under three or you know, under 500,000, that wouldn't make sense. But another thing that's been happening is it's getting harder and harder for people to qualify at the banks. So creative financing can actually solve that problem, where if you have a buyer who would ideally go to a bank, like, you know, four, five, 6% interest rates, it's going to get tougher because you have to qualify at a much higher rate versus if I have a creative financing deal where I may offer, you know, 4% interest and I would take, let's say a down deposit and, you know, there's no credit checks, no banks involved, then technically you can either buy those type of investment properties very quick and then let the appreciation for the next three, four years work with you. And then you can close on it eventually. Or if you have a longer term, you know, creative financing deal, then, I mean, in States, you can go up to like 30 years. So you would have a fixed 30 years amount that you would have to pay out each month. And, you know, with 30 years, I would be more comfortable. Wouldn't that be that nice? Over. Yeah. That's that would too bad. be really amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. For sure. Okay. So I'm going to just throw a few quick questions at you. Mm -hmm. This has more just kind of some personal questions just to get your answers. Sure. And uh, what's an app or software you use in business that you couldn't live without? app or software i think it's a tool called open phone and that's a crm for calling okay and i think that's where 
I make out all the calls and I do a lot of my business. So we have different numbers on it and it's a really cool tool. I mean, you can email, you can schedule a lot of notes on it. Yeah, it's great. Open phone. Can't live without it. Can you record on it too? Can you record a conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Nice. And by the way, Corey, that's also a really great tool for new wholesalers out there. Record every single call. If you're talking to people on the phone, record it and listen back. It's going to sound awful, but <laughs> that's where the growth happens. Yeah, that's good for sure. Okay. So what's something some people can't find out about you on Google? Well, I'm into music, so I don't know if anybody can find out. I play guitar. I'm not really good at it, but that's something uh, that is always enjoy? my passion. And nice. I really enjoy it. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you about activity or something you do in your downtime. And then what's a favorite book of yours? Favorite book of mine. Okay. I think if I were to pick one, it has to be Think and Grow Rich. Yeah. yeah that's it's a good a powerful one. book. And every time you read, there's another golden nugget. And I've read this book, like, I don't know. 50 times at least wow and every time there's some chapters some paragraphs and passages along the story that i can relate to and i'm like hmm this book was written a while ago but all the wisdom in it it's like timeless yeah that's good i'm reading it again right now but i kind of put it by my bed and i stopped but now you've inspired me to get back into reading yeah, it again. yeah yeah and you know the thing is um so i have some passages on audiobooks so i listen to a lot of audiobooks and, you know, I've marked down, you know, certain things in the book. And, you know, as I go along with my day and I'm like, mm, I remember that book talked about something like this, you know, and I would go back and I would listen to it. So I think the other thing is repetition too. The more you would listen to the same book, I think it just opens up so much that's already there. So it's kind of like, it's pretty cool. So I think that would be my go-to book. Nice. Thanks, Omar, for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. You know, this is a podcast I'd recommend people going back and re-listening to again, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. Thanks for having me, Corey. I think that's great. We need guys like you to do this here. We need a lot more content. We need people sharing what they're doing. And, you know, that's how you would make, you know, more fluid markets. So more content, more knowledge, and it's easy. I think the biggest thing that we need if anybody wants to come into wholesaling, for example, is awareness. You know, if content like you is out there, I could go up, I can tune in, see, listen to what other people are doing. And, and there's always something that, you know, I would learn from somebody and I can probably apply that here. And so that's really powerful. So yeah, it's great having you or having me on the show. Looking forward to it. Thank you. And then what's the best way? So someone wants to find you online or can they find you? Are you on Instagram, Facebook, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so we're currently setting up, we're revamping our Instagram, but we do have a Facebook page. It's True North Homes Canada. Okay. And if you want to go follow it, uh, can feel free to follow, or we have a website, but we use it mainly for the lead source. So the best way is to follow us on Facebook with True okay. North Homes Canada. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Awesome, Corey. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent. I also have a certification as a master home inspector. I'm currently partnering on a property flip in Calgary with Shirley Evans, who I consider to be a professional property flipper. Shirley has a wealth of real estate knowledge. We're going to be offering Eventbrite meetups at the property. So if you're in the Calgary area, we'd love for you to stop by and check it out. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, my number is 587-893. 2272. You can follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey or check out my website and that's just CoreyPeckford.com. 
Plus, you can also join our new Facebook group, Calgary Real Estate Investing Group. That's Craig for short. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.